If you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. This will be our second to last sermon in this series. I've entitled it, Take the Water of Life Freely. Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 through 17, hear now the word of God. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, and the spirit and bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is so much unconquered territory in our hearts. We do pray, Father, that by your word and by your spirit, you would just overcome. That you would ever conform us into the image of your son. That you would form Christ in us. And everything we say, do, and think. So we do pray, Father, this morning as we enter into our study of your word, that you would empty out the buyers and the sellers of the temples of our soul and help us, Father, to recognize the beauty of who you are, what you've done, and your call in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was about 10 years old when I, uh, well, a group of us found a flare on the playground of our elementary school here in Redondo Beach. So we began daring each other to light it up. And the turgor pressure of my peers was more than I could bear. Snap, you know those old flares? Snap, strike, flame, principal's office. (laughs) And it was enough of an infraction that I guess maybe it was a code that they actually had to call the Redondo Beach Fire Department. And there I sat in the principal's office awaiting my verdict. And two firemen came down and sat down next to me and began to engage. I'm 10 years old. They asked me why I decided to light the flare. And so I explained to them in my own 10-year-old way the social dynamic that led me to this particular infraction, something I think we call peer pressure. I tried to remain cool as one of the firemen explained something to me. Sadly, I'm convinced that I was so cool, but not really cool at all, pretending to be cool, that this fireman probably walked away from me thinking that his engagement with me was an entire waste of time. Yet here I am, almost 60 years later, sharing this story with you. Don't ever underestimate underestimate what God might do, even if you're talking to somebody and it seems like they've just blown you off, because I'm sure I, I looked like I blew him off. 
and yet sometimes things get implanted in there and they remain. He said to me, and this is what I remember, son, in this world, there are leaders and there are followers, and you need to decide which you're going to be. Now, as years went on, I began to realize, really by the grace of God, that ultimately everybody is following somebody. And in order for me to be the kind of person that was not the follower that this fireman was talking about, because that was a follower in a negative way, I had to make a decision, well, who am I actually going to follow then? Because we're all following somebody. It might be a series of different things, but still... That, that which motivates us to fall here, here, and here is something that we're, we're led to follow by our environment, by our parents, and so forth. So the question that I asked myself, the question I'm asking you, who, in the final analysis, are you going to follow? And Jesus said, you can't have two masters. You're going to love one, you're going to hate the other. Who, who is in charge of your life. To whom will you ultimately bow the knee? Because it's going to be somebody. Whose name will be stamped upon your forehead and your hand? Right? Who will you follow with the way you think and who will you follow with the way you behave is a recurring theme throughout the Revelation. As I've said, it's not about tattoos and it's not about subcutaneous computer chips. It is about who owns your heart, your mind, and who owns your behavior. That was the question that was asked of me, and that's the question I'm asking of you. Who's in charge? Verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Well... It's not as if answering naysayers is or really should be a ministerial priority. I'm not about coming here and kind of trying to, in an apologetic form, deal with everybody who's got something critical to say about the Christian faith. But there are times when the naysayers, there are times when the critics have a point. And when that point goes out, I think we as a church, we as Christians should be able to answer, give an answer to those particular criticisms. Many of you maybe have heard of Vincent Bugliosi. He was the, the attorney on the Charles Manson trial back in the 60s, early 70s. And he wrote a book, I mean, he wrote the, the famous book, Helter Skelter, but he wrote another book called The Divinity of Doubt, The God Question, where he really puts the scriptures on trial. It's almost as if, as a lawyer, he, he's going to indict the Bible, really indict Jesus Christ himself. And this indictment comes as a result of the failed prophecies of Jesus. But Bugliosi didn't come up with this on his own. Years earlier, the famous atheist Bertrand Russell offered the very same criticisms in a very famous book that he wrote called Why I Am Not a Christian that Jesus offered failed prophecies was the criticism that they offered. Now, keep this in mind. That's no small thing in the Bible. If you're a prophet and you're a failed prophet and you lie in your prophecies, the penalty for that was death. 
So it's a big deal, these criticisms. Now, the reason I bring this up is because among the many passages that they would cite in the Bible in terms of failed prophecies is the one we're looking at right now. This idea, behold, I'm coming when? Quickly. Now, that's not the only one. Sometimes if you have one passage, you're like going, okay, we need to understand that one passage. And I'm not going to go into detail here because we've done it before, but I think you need to understand there are many passages that become problematic when it comes to the timing of these events. So I'm going to just mention a few here, not go into details, because I just want to highlight one specific part of these many passages. One is in Matthew 16, 27 and 28, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels. Sounds kind of like the second coming. And then he will reward each according to his works. Sounds like the passage we just read. Assuredly, I say to you, now this is where it gets, and I'm asking you to be good students. I'm asking you to read it and draw this conclusion yourself. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'm just going to ask, what's the natural reading of that? Jesus is teaching. He is saying, there are some of you standing here who will not die. Now, some people would say, well, that was the transfiguration, but that only happened a week later. Everybody was still going to be alive. But the destruction of the temple, the coming in judgment, that happened 40 years later. Some of them would be alive, some of them would not. The point here is, though, he's saying he's coming with his angels, in glory, to yield everybody according to their works, and yet he's saying some of you are still going to be alive when that happens. Actually, some people have argued that some of those people are still alive somewhere. That's, that's somebody who's committed to their doctrine. <laughs> but this isn't the only one. Mark 9, 1, and he said to them, As surely I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Again, in another passage, and I can't get into the details here. We've talked about it uh, before. This passage speaks of the tribulation. It speaks of the sun being darkened. It speaks of the moon not giving out its light. This is all in Mark 13. And then Jesus teaches, I assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. It's the near demonstrative. This generation, not that generation, not some generation, this generation. What's the natural reading of that? Again, in Luke 9, 26 and 27, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. You see the event. It's a big event. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. But it's not just in the Gospels. We read in James 5.8, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What does at hand mean? It, it, it mean? it meant then what it means now, and that is it's about to happen. Now, we've got the context. If those of you who study your Bibles know that context is important, right? So in the New Testament, we've established the wider context of in some, I'm not talking, let me just make this clear, because if you start telling your friends this, they're going to 
think I'm unorthodox. The position I'm sharing with you is the orthodox, historic, biblical position of the church. I believe that there will be a second coming, a bodily second coming of Christ, judgment day. I, I do believe that'll happen. But not every coming of Christ in the Bible is the second coming. You understand? Just as the day of the Lord has multiple fulfillments, the coming of Christ has multiple fulfillments. So as we're looking at the context, the wider context is Jesus saying, there are some of you who aren't going to be dead when certain things take place in terms of my coming in judgment. What about the more immediate context in the Revelation? In the very book we're studying, it opens this way. So we're to read the whole, Bible, the whole book in light of these first three verses, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants things which, what, must shortly take place. How would the readers have understood that? It's going to happen shortly. And just in case they didn't understand it with that one verse, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw. And notice, by the way, this language repeated in the verse we're looking at this morning, the testimony of Christ and so forth. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For what? The time is near. Now that's the wider context within the book. And now let's look at the immediate context of the passage that we're studying right now. So I realize this is kind of looking like a hermeneutics class. But I think, you know, one of the things that's important for me is for you to know how to read your Bibles. And one of the important things in, Bible, in the Bible is context. So we've established the wider context of the New Testament. We've established the context within the Revelation. And now the immediate context of the very passage that we're looking at. Chapter 22, verses 6 and 7. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, here we have it again, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then finally, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy. And I got into that last time because you don't seal it up. In Daniel, they sealed, they sealed it up because it wasn't going to happen for 400 years. Here he's saying, don't seal it up. Why? Don't put it on the shelf because it's about to happen for the time is at hand. Well, you know, I mean, I guess I'm going to ask you to be what the fireman asked me to be, and that is don't be a follower of anybody but Christ and his word because you're going to be bombarded with books and movies that are telling you that this is the end of the world. And I'm telling you there is going to be an end of the world. There is going to be a second coming of Christ, a bodily second coming. There is going to be a judgment day, but that's not what this is talking about. Just this past week, I have to say, I was excoriated for having the audacity to suggest that the visions in the Revelation metaphorically referred to kings and battles which took place in the first century as God was preserving his church against its detractors, which I think the Revelation is about. It's primarily about God preserving his church against Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. Big old long DM kind of ripping into to me, you know, and I'm... I don't have a, a, a thin skin about this. I've been doing this for a long time. And I, I probably, I don't want to say I don't care what people think. I probably care more than I show. 
Same way I didn't show my real self to the firemen, you know. Like, I want to hear people's criticisms. But, you know, this whole system has built into it kind of this, this accusation that when the rapture happens, I'm going to be one of the guys left behind because I don't believe in a premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational rapture. Of course, I would be me and Calvin and Luther and Jonathan Edwards, and I, I'll, I guess I'll hang out with them <laughs> until all this comes to pass. But here's the deal. Many of the, many of the detractors will take the passages that I just read about some standing here who will not taste death. It's happening soon. It's coming quickly. They'll take those, which, by the way, have no metaphor in them at all, right? It's just direct pedagogical language, and they will morph those into something that is just exegetically unnatural. See, here's the deal. Things, things that are apocalyptic in their language, things that are metaphorical in their language, let them be metaphorical. But things that are are didactic or pedagogical or just designed to clearly narrate and instruct, let them be what they say. It's going to happen soon. So although the Revelation does address the final judgment, I think in Revelation chapter 20, we see the great white throne judgment. We see the second coming of Christ. Primarily, and if you haven't gotten anything from me in this whole series, hopefully you get this, primarily... The revelation concerns the transition from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant and God preserving His church and keeping His promise to bless those who bless His covenant people and to curse those who curse His covenant people. It is about B.C. to A.D. The revelation is all about how we went from before Christ to Anno Domini, the changing of the ages, the New Covenant. This was a promise He gave all the way back in Genesis 12.3 to bless those who bless and to curse those who curse his bride, which would be the bastion by which God would reveal himself to this fallen world. The original readers of the Revelation were under the heavy hand of religious and political persecution from Rome and from Jerusalem. Rome as a political entity was hammering on them. Jerusalem as a religious entity was just seeking to corrupt them. The Romans would have people bow the knee to Caesar. You know, as you, as, you, as you read your Bibles, as you get older and older, certain things jump out at you more than they used to. It should be horrifying to our ears, or since we're reading to our eyes as it goes into our mind, when we recognize that it was the covenant people of God, right? That old covenant church, who answered Pilate with these words, we have no king but Caesar. That was the church talking. We have no king but Caesar. I've argued in the past that I think this is the first taking of the mark of the beast that we see recorded in the New Testament. When they said, no, no, I'll tell you who our king is. I'll tell you who we'll bow before. Caesar is Lord. And those same covenant people knew the course that they had to take in order to enlist Rome in their quest to kill Jesus because they couldn't do it on their own because they were under Rome. So how do you get Rome mad at Jesus? Well, there are many passages I called upon, but Acts 17, 6 and 7, these men who have turned the world upside down, talking about the followers of Jesus, 
I love that idea that they're turning the world upside down. As some commentators say, they're, what they really were doing was turning the world right side up. But you get, you know, the idiom. They're turning the world upside down, these Christians. And Jason has received them. So this guy is allowing them to have quarters. And they are all acting against the decree of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. You want to get Rome against you? Let them know that their king has a king. You know, we've been praying for the Chinese church. What, you know why they had to leave China and go to Korea and then Thailand and then end up in Texas? It wasn't because they prayed, and it wasn't even because they believed in justification by grace alone through faith alone. It was because they believed that there's a king above all kings. They're going to let... They'll, the, the, the communist leaders in China or, or Russia or wherever, they're going to let you have your Bible study. They're going to let you pray as long as you're benign and insignificant. But the moment you start writing, as these pastors have done, against abortion, the moment you say, no, when you do this, you are, you are violating the law of God and you're not bowing the knee to the one who is your king, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. And that's what was happening in the first century church. That's the context of the revelation. These churches were under the heavy hand of Rome and under the perversion of Jerusalem. Jesus was born, lived, and died in a politically and religiously hostile environment. They tried to kill him the day he was born. And they were trying to kill him his whole life. I don't know, sometimes we see movies about Jesus and he's like walking his dog on the Sea of Galilee as everything is peaceful. It's not. And he was killed, but he rose again. And he would ensure the preservation of his bride, the church. And the primary theme in the Revelation is the call for his bride to remain faithful. I'm coming, and I'm going to, be, I'm going to divide the waters here, so you make sure that you're on the right side, not only of history, but of eternity. Some of these people in these churches, would most assuredly die. This is, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here. Postmillennialism is not a prosperity gospel. You may have to die for your faith. But their blood would be the seed of the church. And that church would continue to move forward. And that temple, which was, was, was the earmark of, of, of Jerusalem and the Roman Empire, they would become an afterthought while the kingdom of God would endure forever. And you and I sit here as part of that kingdom. But it is a fight. And I have to say, I was a little put off when I heard a very popular Southern California pastor talk about post-millennialism when he said, you know, he looked at his congregation, he goes, you have to understand, we're going to lose. And he kept saying, we're going to lose. He goes, what are you, post-millennial? You think we're going to waltz into the kingdom of God and put the entire world under our feet and take over the world. Let me tell you, that's not post-millennialism. Post-millennialism isn't waltzing into the kingdom of God. Post-millennialism does teach that people may suffer and die for their faith, but it also teaches that their blood would in fact be the seed of the church which will endure throughout the course of history. Now, when he communicates that his reward is with him, to give everyone according to his work. Maybe your antennas went up. 
right? Is this a works righteousness? Are you telling me I'm saved by works? You have to understand he's not contradicting what is taught everywhere else in the Bible. The Bible is not a systematic theology, and it doesn't splice up doctrines the way we would like to splice up doctrines. It doesn't, he doesn't always put a parenthesis in there and go, by the way, I still think you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone. These statements are made for us to kind of recognize the experience of the Christian, and that is, as a Christian, we are to walk faithfully. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but the Christian is then called to walk faithfully, and there's a difference between the two. To be given our heavenly reward according to our work is not the same as given our heavenly reward by virtue of our work. When Paul writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he doesn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. We need to be able to make that distinction. Yet I will say this, the works of the Christian, and by works I'm talking about, as Jesus said, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to seek to obey the commandments of God. Those two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, those are a summary of the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments are a summary of over 600 commandments we see in the Scriptures that we are called to obey those commandments. That is the true expression of our love for God and our love for one another. And I'll tell you this, they are so necessarily tied to saving faith that one should not think themselves a child of God if good works are entirely absent. If you're not in the fight, If you're not fighting on a daily basis to rid your mind, your heart, of those evil things that still reside, if you're not going, look, I'm in a battle, then you need to rethink and re-examine whether or not you're in the faith at all because saving faith produces faithfulness. Perhaps the most quoted passage in the Bible telling us that we're saved by grace also tells us why we have been saved, Ephesians 2 8 and 9, but we often leave out 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And oftentimes people stop there. But verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, verses 13 and 14. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Well, you know, I back up and I look, you know, Jesus says I'm the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, first and the last. And, you know, you back up and you go, I wonder why he's saying that. Why is he entering that here? The conclusion I drew is because, you know what? Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, right? Isaiah writes, they are as a drop in the bucket. They are counted as small dust on the scales. God raises up kingdoms and he deposes kingdoms. He raises up kings and he deposes kings. But there is one kingdom that will never end. We read that in Daniel 7, 14. This is the kingdom that will never end. Let me tell you, you are in that kingdom now But when you die, you will have the full consummation of that kingdom, but you're in the same kingdom. Now we see through a mirror dimly, then we shall see face to face. But when we gather together, we're gathering together with that church, that heavenly church, we're gathering together. I think their rhythm section might be a little better than ours. 
but we should praise recognizing that's where we are. We are with that eternal kingdom, not to get on the rhythm. I don't even really know what a rhythm section is, but do we even have, do we have a rhythm section? All right, so my apologies to the Sometimes you say something and you realize somebody's going to be insulted, and I didn't mean it that way. But we have a kingdom that will never end because we have a king that will never die. He died once, he rose again, and he will never again die. And not only is he our king, even as Bob prayed, he's our prophet giving us this word. It's his testimony, as we'll see, but he's also our priest. He's our living priest. You know, we're Protestants, so we believe in the priesthood of all believers. So in a certain sense, we're all priests. But in another sense, we're different from Roman Catholics in that they have they have in their ecclesiology and they're set up in church priests. We don't have priests, we have pastors. We don't have priests, we have a priest. And Jesus is our high priest. And he ever lives. We read in Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, the former priests were many in number, talking about the Old Testament priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. I mean, you mean it just dawned on me, you know, that you know, there'll come a time when I, as a pastor, will be prevented from continuing in this office. And it is my prayer that this church won't lose a step. When it gets right down to it, you have to understand, I'm expendable. It's only Christ who's not expendable, and he will live forever. So to the extent that the church preaches Christ and him crucified, it continues. But if you're building too much upon whoever happens to be standing up front, that person, whether it's me or somebody else, they're going to come to an end. Are you trusting Are you putting your hope and your faith in something that may come to an end? Whether it's a person or a kingdom, you name it, it's going to come to an end other than Christ. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we have a priest taking care of us, praying for us, interceding for us, presents his own blood for us. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, our only reasonable conclusion with language like that is that he's assigning deity to himself. He's assigning God, Godhood to himself. Alpha, Omega, first, last, beginning, end. That's God. It just eludes me how the cults will not acknowledge the godhood of Christ. How odd do you have to read your Bible? How much do you have to twist it to ignore the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is truly God and truly man? Why is it so necessary? And I was tempted to launch into why our mediator, why our Savior had to be truly God and truly man. I think it would be a worthy thing to discuss, but I already had so many pages that I had to cut it a little bit short, but I will say this, that he had to be God, that he might not sink under the infinite wrath of God. He had to be God that the power of death would satisfy God's justice in saving us. He is God with us, Emmanuel, and he is Jesus, the God who saves us. Whether we know it or not, our biggest problem we have in this life when we're born in sin is that our relationship with God has been broken. It's the biggest problem a human being can have, and we should trust in no one less than God himself to fix that problem. And God, the eternal Son of God, became flesh that he might reconcile that which no human being, 
no nation, no power, no philosophy could reconcile. So when Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning and the end, I'm the first and the last, he's going, you know, the Roman Empire is pretty powerful, but you've got to decide who you're going to trust. Are you going to trust the Roman Empire, or are you going to trust me? It is safe to conclude that this self-description of Jesus is designed for us to weigh our trust or, or fear of the world versus our trust or fear of God. And it goes back to what I said in the very beginning. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to put your trust in? Do you even know, do you even know who you're putting your trust in? He's um, appealing to his own godhood. I've said this many times, but I'll say it again, because every time I think of it, I know it just uh, administers to me. John saw a lot of visions in the Revelation, a lot of beasts, a lot of monsters, a lot of cataclysms, right? Stars falling down. But there was only one vision that he saw that made him fall down as dead, and that was the vision of the glorified Christ. We need to know who is in charge. We do know the power of the living God. Then, in that event in Revelation 1, where John falls as dead, remember what Jesus does? He lays his right hand upon him. He says, don't be afraid. I, I mean, that's one of, the, one of the passages in Amazing Grace I really, really love, and that is, it's by grace he taught my heart to fear, and by grace those fears relieved. All of that revelation was all by the grace of God. He fell down by the grace of God, and Jesus lifted him up by the grace of God. So thorough, though, so satisfactory is his victory over death. And I don't know if we think about it this way. He uses language that is almost uncomfortable in describing our access to the tree of life, our access to that city of God, that our access to heaven our access to peace with the living God. He uses language almost uncomfortable that we have a right. A right. You know what? I'm an American. Most of you here are probably Americans. We love our rights. We appeal to our rights. You know, you get pulled over, you get brought in, I have a right. I have a right to a phone call, I have a right to an attorney. I think most of us would take a deep breath before we looked at God and say, hey, I have rights. Yet that's the word that is used. You have a right. The same author in his gospel put it this way, but as many as received him to them, it's the same word in the Greek, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. It makes you, I hope it elevates your understanding in terms of what Christ has done for you, that you actually have a right to this position. It's not a right based upon anything you are, anything you've done. I mean, the next verse in John 1, 12, the next verse 13 says, not by the will of man, nor by the will of the flesh, you know, or by anything. Like, by the way, it's not anything that was found in you that gave you that right. But so sure, the surety, the blessed assurance that we have that we can call it a right because of what Jesus has in fact done for us. Verse 15, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. 
I realize we live in a church that has grown very uncomfortable with the idea that there are those excluded from the kingdom of God. I, I understand the world that I'm living in. We, we try to be more inclusive than Jesus. Just briefly, and I, want to get into the, I don't want to get into the weeds and every last single thing because I don't think he's giving an exhaustive list here, but just to kind of get us understanding, the dogs here are probably referring to some type of sexual deviancy based upon Deuteronomy 23.18. Sorcerers, he mentions. Why are sorcerers so evil? Because they're seeking to supplant the wisdom of God by guiding us in wisdom and direction. They're saying, no, don't, don't look at the word of God. Don't pray. You come into my little den. I'll look at your palm and tell you what you have to do. You see, they're they're taking the place of God. Sexually immoral covers the vast spectrum of sexual perversions that destroy families, which inevitably destroy cultures. Murderers are those who have jettisoned the idea that men and women are made in the image of God, and so we feel free to kill unborn babies. We feel free to kill the elderly. We feel free to just put people to death because it's convenient. So we have this idea that, that it's okay to take life. Idolaters are those who are committed to bow to the knee to anyone except for the true living God. And those who love and practice lies, they're the ones who are convinced that because their darkness deserves to prevail, they can bend the truth beyond recognition. It is so easy how people can lie. People lie. Friends, it's not an act of love to make someone comfortable in their sin and rebellion against God. That is not an act of love on your part. People, myself included, I take comfort in those passages in the Bible where we see Jesus dining with sinners. I like that, right? The, the Pharisees criticize, why does your master dine with sinners? And I've heard people, just this last week, our pastor kind of used that as a reason that we should allow people to become part of our church who engage in, you know, homosexual lifestyle or transgenderism or, you know, lesbianism or you, the whole host of things. They're like, going, yeah, you people who think those things are wrong, you're the Pharisees. Jesus would sup with those people. And if you're, if you're not really paying attention, you could be made to feel guilty. But you, when you start reading those passages where Jesus dined with the sinners... When he, was, when he was criticized and how he responded, what we have to recognize is that he met them in their sin, he dined with them in their sin, but he didn't leave them in their sin. That, that's conveniently ignored in this whole dialogue. Let me just give you one example in Matthew 9, 12 and 13, when, when Jesus heard that, that they were criticizing him for dining with sinners. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. By the way, these are metaphors for sinlessness and sinfulness. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So at some point in the evening meal, when Jesus was dining with the sinners, you know what they would hear? What they probably already heard if they listened to this answer. Are you saying I'm one of the sinners? I came for the sinners. Are you one of the sinners? So, Because if you are one of the sinners, not only did I come for the sinners, but I came 
for the sinners to call them to do what? To repent. Friends, there are a few things more dangerous than false assurance. You think you're being loving by letting somebody live a life where the Bible, the verse that we're looking at right now, outside, outside of the kingdom of God, Paul even wrote about it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, he goes, don't be deceived. People who live a life of rebellion against God are excluded from the kingdom of God. You're not being loving when you, when you comfort them in living in that sin. Now, I'm not saying to be harsh. I'm not saying to be mean-spirited. We are to be loving. But you know what? I mean, I've, I know I say this verse a lot, but it's a true verse. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And you know what? If you're willing to speak out gently, lovingly, keeping this in mind, that if you, no matter how loving and gentle you are, you will be accused of being judgmental in a negative way. But you need to be ready to blow that trumpet. In Ezekiel, it talks about blowing the trumpet. And if you don't blow that trumpet of warning, you know, and this, I'm not to lay a big guilt trip on you, but if you don't blow that warning of trumpet, their blood is where? On your hands. But God has given us a serious responsibility when it comes to calling out sin and calling people to repentance. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Well, you know, we live in a world where it's becoming increasingly difficult to ascertain truth. You know, it's, boy, you just, I don't know how many links I get a day that contradict each other and you're trying to figure out what's really going on here. But God has given us his word. The message of Revelation had immediate and direct application to the seven churches to whom it was addressed. Right, so they, they, they know something's about to happen. What does that mean to us? Here's what it means to us. It means that this applies with equal measure to all churches throughout the course of history who find themselves in similar situations. But we are not to allow ourselves to be overly dependent upon the Caesar, or we're not allowed ourselves to be overly swayed by false religion, no matter how powerful, no matter how effective it might be, if you're promised riches, if you're promised position, that you need to recognize this, that God has given us his testimony in the scriptures. And that needs to be the place where we hang our hat. That needs to be the place where we go in terms of our foundation. Whether the onslaught comes from Christ-rejecting religions or the heavy-handed political oppression that inevitably comes throughout cultures, the church must ever hear that testimony. Am I interested in your testimony? Sure. But, but, you know, it's interesting, and if, when you meet with the elders, we'll ask you, you know, if you want to be a member, we'll go, tell us how Christ brought you into his kingdom, and that's your testimony. And that's great, but you know what? Your testimony is not the testimony, right? The testimony is found in the Word of God. It's his testimony, and that is the testimony that needs to ever prevail. And the testimony is this, that Jesus is the root and offspring of David, What is that? The root and offspring of David. God swore an oath to David that he would, in Acts 2.30, raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So David, just so you understand the way this works, was a king in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. 
But as a king, he was a type, a foreshadow of the king of kings, who is Christ. And God made a promise to David going, you know, through your seed, I will raise up a king who will sit upon your throne. So the Christ would sit upon the throne of David, which was not a throne merely of Israel, but the throne of all, right? The king of kings and lord of lords. Let me ask you a question. When did that happen? When did that happen? Because we live in a culture that thinks, a Christian culture that thinks that hasn't happened yet. You'll hear it sometimes. Prophet, priest, soon coming king. Maybe some of you were here when I debated the premillennial guy, Ken something. And um, I asked him, I go, is Jesus currently the king of kings? And he, I don't know, he just was not willing to answer. He goes, well, it's like being in escrow. I'm like, okay, I'm not familiar with second escrows in the Bible. Like, where do you see that in the Bible? Is he currently the king of kings and lord of lords? And he would not answer yes to that question. But Acts tells us, that, and this is the context of Acts 30, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, Acts 2.31, he foreseeing this spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he ascended where? To the right hand of God, where he currently sits as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This book starts off telling us that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is not the coming king. He is the king. That he is the bright and morning star speaks of the beginning of a new day. This, you know, this idea, the, the picture there would be, you know, the day is beginning and you've got this first star in the sky I, don't, I think we underestimate how dark the world was prior to the coming of Christ. And he came, and this new covenant began. So in a certain sense, this bright and morning star was the beginning of the new covenant. It was the beginning of this new dawn in human history. I like to compare it this way, because in the old covenant, God was found only with the nation of Israel. Right? If you wanted to have interaction with God, you had to go to Israel. You had to go to the temple. Right? So you had a very thin line of the grace of God in the Old Testament. I compare it to fireworks display we see on the 4th of July, right? Where the whole sky is dark and you've got this one line going up, right? In the dark. There's firework. This little light is going up. But when Christ came, that firework explodes and covers the entire sky. So what we're reading here is... That is just beginning. This new covenant era is just beginning. The mustard seed will grow. The leaven will permeate the loaf. The, the, the stream coming out of the temple will become an impassable deluge. It's going to get brighter and brighter and brighter is the message. The bright and morning star. But let us not just think of that in terms of some type of end times picture. Uh, some kind of eschatological scheme. Because it becomes very personal as well. It starts in your heart. It starts in my heart. Peter put it this way. Peter writes of a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So we, we, we can't get lost in the big picture. 
it, you know, I mean, I, I could ask you, I mean, what's your contribution to the light? Are you shining your light? Or is it hidden under a peck measure? Because nobody could see it. Finally, and the spirit and bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So through the work of the spirit and the bride of Christ, these proclamations, they should resonate with us. That we should ever agree and pray that God would intervene in human history. They're saying, come and do this. You've promised to do this, come and do it. Come and intervene. Preserve your bride. Advance your kingdom. We pray today, thy kingdom come, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We are praying that his kingdom would continue to come. His will would continue to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray. Say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And let me just say, this it just popped in my head. There are a lot of people pining away for the second coming. And I'm like, oh, that... Sometimes I find that a really unhealthy kind of obsession. You know, it's this idea that I just want to get out of here. No, no, no. God has called you to stay, and if you're going to call for the coming of Christ, call for him to come and bring revival. Call for him to come and bring his message. Call for him to come and bring repentance. Don't call for him to come and rescue you. I mean, that's something that's promised, but we need to recognize we're in a fight. But that fight's going nowhere unless, in fact, the spirit and bride call upon the Lord to come and intervene in human history because all of our efforts mean nothing apart from the work of Christ and His intervention in human history. And finally, let us not lose sight of this. And I do, I don't know if you remember, because this is Sermon 62, one more sermon on this. And I said, my goal in the Revelation is to approach, is to approach the Revelation ministerially and not just kind of as a prophecy conference or something like that. And I do pray that, that, is, that it has been ministerial to you. I do pray that it has revealed to you things about God in terms of who he is, what he has done, what he's doing, what he will do. It, I pray that it's ministerial to you in terms of its call in your life, your, the call to walk in a certain way, to live a certain way, to pray a certain way, to praise God in a certain way. But it's, it should be ministerial so I want to end with a quote here from David Clark, Gordon Clark's dad, for those of you who know these guys. And he wrote this, this book, so full of judgments and the smoke of torment from the lake of fire, does not leave the reader with only such visions in mind. Right? It's not just about that looks good, which looks good on a movie screen. He writes, the grace of God and the mercy of God shines out grandly amid them all. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would not lose sight of the centrality of the fact that Jesus provides those living waters. That he is in fact the central focus not only of the revelation, but of all of scripture and of all of creation, that our minds and our hearts should ever be focused upon him, that we would fix our eyes upon the author and finisher of our faith. And may, Father, that give us great hope in the midst of our struggles and difficulties. And may we, Father, be good warriors, standing strong in the Lord, knowing that the Lord is our strength. And we do pray, Father, that you would continue to come 
and that you would continue to bring your message and your kingdom upon a world that's in desperate need of it. In Jesus' name, amen.